Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. Welcome to the Clerical Errors Podcast. I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. And uh, good to have you along today. If you have a beverage, please join us and... uh, Talk about it on Facebook. Right. And on our Twitter account. Yeah. The Clerical Errors P (laughs) at Twitter. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) We'll get this eventually. And it, it's exciting today. We have uh, a couple of people in our VIP section. You want to holler at us? No, they don't. They're shy. But uh, it's good to have you with us today. <laughs> They're making faces at me. <laughs> so, Berg, you brought the, the beverage today. What you got for us? Well, this is a beer from Lake Time Brewery, which is up in Clear Lake, Iowa, not too far away. That's actually the last place that, uh, oh, what's his name? Died. They died in that plane crash. Oh, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, right? He, and Richie he went, Valens. Right. Who is the third one? Do you remember the third one? Um, hey, Vicar, who was the third person that died? Uh, On the day the music died. Yeah. Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, uh, the Big Bopper would be the third. J.P. Richardson. Before my time. <laughs> All right, so... Let's uh, crack this. So what this is, is a uh, cappuccino stout, and my wife likes it a lot because it doesn't taste like beer. Her words. So. Oh, okay. Well, did you bring enough for her too? I mean, that's how we treat our VIP section. It's true, but I don't. I don't think she's she's in the mood for one. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, it does taste like coffee. Is this going to keep me up? Absolutely. <laughs> It'll keep you up for the podcast. You'll be ready to go. So it does have actual coffee in it? I don't know. They, <laughs> they, what they probably did was uh, put the beans over. They either did cold brew and then added it to the brew, mm-hmm. you know, or they uh, put the beans in, in a secondary fermentation. I've actually made a coffee mead before that I've done stuff like that. So How did that turn out? All right, you know. It wasn't my favorite, but so uh, today uh, we normally talk about what we're preaching on, and it's it's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday, <laughs> and you're not even going to be there on Sunday. So. I know. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I are flying down to Texas for a wedding. So sounds pretty rad to use your wording. It is pretty righteous, man. Pretty righteous. So uh, we thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about the Ascension, right? Because that'll be not this coming Sunday, but uh, the Thursday. And mm-hmm. why is it the Thursday, Vicar? Because Ascension is 40 days after Easter, which is on Sunday. <laughs> and because it's on a Sunday, that means Ascension's always on a... A Thursday. All right. You're on fire. You're almost made up for your... Uh... <laughs> One and a half pounds. All right. So uh, so what do you know about the Ascension, Berg? Uh, Jesus went up. Never to be seen again, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that's not true, right? Because St. Paul sees him again in uh, on the Damascene Road, so... So uh, I remember one time uh, I, w- I was really going to have an Ascension service, and I promoted it, and I promoted it, and uh, and we get g- pretty good turnout on all our midweek services, but for some reason that Ascension service, there were uh, three people there, and uh, one was the organist, and the other belonged to my family. <laughs> so That's funny. So I don't know, I, for, for a second I thought maybe the rapture had come, but uh, historically this was always a big day, 
Hasn't it been? Right. We're actually uh, celebrating, we're actually commemorating Ascension on Tuesday because we have a weekly divine service on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. And, I mean, the Ascension is the final stage of Jesus' exaltation, right? Where Mm -hmm. he ascends to the right hand of God, there to rule over all things until every enemy is put under his feet. As Psalm 110.1 says, uh, and, um, and 1 Corinthians 15 is really big on this too. Um, so what is the ascension? What is the right hand of God? Now, there are a lot of people who think that the right hand of God is heaven, right? That Jesus is up in heaven. It's like he's locked in heaven and mm-hmm. he can, you know, never come and visit us unless, you know, you look at the vicar's wall where there's ghost Jesus, right? Casper Jesus, like behind the, and, the boy. Or, and that, and you know, that, that's why a lot, a lot of uh, other traditions don't believe in the real presence because Jesus ascended into heaven. And how can he then also be with you in, in the Lord's Supper? Right. But if you look at the texts um, in Ephesians and the like, uh, Jesus isn't, his his human nature has now been exalted, right? Mm-hmm. It's been exalted, which means that it has taken on divine uh, powers and um, qualities. So, for example, a man now is almighty. A man now is omniscient. A man now is everywhere. Because mm-hmm. the right hand of God uh, doesn't talk about, isn't heaven, right? Right. Well, where's God? Everywhere. Everywhere. So if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, where is Jesus? Everywhere. He's everywhere. Right? The, the point, though, is is that it doesn't matter that Jesus is everywhere, because that means he's in, you know, the the HIV and in the in the tor- tornado that blows your house down, right. right? What matters is, is where is Jesus for you? Yeah, where he promised to be. Right. And where does he promise to be? Well, he says, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Nice. He also says in Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, So in that, he would suggest that he is there also in baptizing and in the preaching and the teaching. Mm -hmm. Also, we can point to John chapter 20. Nice. Right? Where... Where Jesus breathes on the, his disciples and says, um, rece- breathes on them the Holy Spirit and says, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. So in their pronouncement of forgiveness and also in binding uh, people to their sins, it is as if the voice of Jesus is speaking. Right? Right. And then also when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my body uh, given for you. And this cup is a New Testament in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So he ascended, he says uh, in John, I will no longer see me or you will no longer see me. But it doesn't mean he is not there where he meets with his people. Right. And that's what we found out about last Sunday, right? Yeah. And Jesus said, it's actually to your advantage, to your benefit that I go away, that I uh, die, I rise, and then I ascend into heaven. Why? Well, because look at how it was with the crowds. Remember the paralytic? Right, mm-hmm. they couldn't even get to Jesus, so they had to dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. Yeah, right. Jesus doesn't have; he is not limited by those constraints anymore. Now Jesus can speak from a hundred thousand altars all at the same time, and his body can be on a million altars mm-hmm. all at the same time. Why? Because he is exalted, because his human nature has been lifted up, and that is a wonderful thing. And that's what the ascension is about. And that that is why he uh, he waits until uh, the ascension before he. Pentecost, where he sends out the disciples, gives a, sends them out to preach his word, because now where they go, so he goes. Right. 
So, all right, we're off to a, a rousing start. So uh, that brings us to our top 12 list. Peter, play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's Top 12. All right. Today's Top 12 list is Top 12 Prayers in the Bible. Ooh, nice. So, uh, and uh, one one reason why I, I wanted to mention this is... Oh, you're such a formalist. Using <laughs> written prayers. Ugh. All right. Okay. Um, hey, Peter, the uh, Bullhagen's about to get real for a second. <laughs> I just had to poke the bear. <laughs> okay. Real talk. It is that kind of attitude. <laughs> it is that kind of attitude that keeps men from praying. I can't imagine how many times this happened to me where my wife has said, Hey, Carl, what are you thinking about? And my response is, Because uh, I go through long periods of time without thinking. And I've had enough vicars. When I ask them to pray, they think, uh, for the first time, because they're not used to praying, right? And so what happens is, men are told, okay, you need to pray. And so they have been led to believe that they need to have this eloquent prayer where they pour out their 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 thoughts and their emotions as though they were making some sort of wedding vows on the Bachelorette show. And they think, I can't come up with all these words. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to pray. And they've been led to believe that they have to somehow reinvent the wheel. And it freezes them up and it keeps them from praying because they think that's weird, that's awkward, I'm horrible at it. And it is because of those attitudes, Berg, that people, men especially, men have trouble praying. What do you think about that? Man up, America. Man, I love it when Bullhagen gets on his rants. So, so if you're a man and you've been asked to pray, then find a good prayer. Right. I mean, the Bible is filled with them, and there are also many prayers from, from, from godly writers who have written good prayers that help you be mindful of the kinds of things you should ask for. So find a prayer book. But this whole idea that they have to be uh, what's the word uh, ex corde to be, and and that's the thing. What does ex corde mean, Vicar? That means from the heart. That uh, that whole idea. Hey, what does what does Scripture say about the heart? That uh, that uh, it is a broken, dead heart. Yep, a heart Out of stone. Of... It's deceitful above all things, right? And so, so the whole idea that somehow a written prayer or a prayer from the Bible is somehow disingenuous, or that's not really what you're thinking. Well, sometimes when you have a prayer, it tells you what you should be thinking about the situation. Right. And especially if it's from the Word of God, people wonder, well, how do I know what God's answer is? Well, it's in the Bible, weirdo. You've got his answer. You pray, uh, he answers awesome. there, right there in Scripture. So, so thank you for poking the bear, but it just needed to be said, don't it, you think? It did need to be said. It, uh, I remember, it did need to be said. I remember as a child doing this, okay? I was really going to, to really enhance my prayer life, and I was going to really have a prayer where I pour Did you out. take tea booster? No, that was that was the, the pre-tea eras. I see. Um, that... Uh, <laughs> I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to pray every night, and 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 uh, I had bought in at that time at a young age that just what we've been talking about, right? Right. And so I'd lay in my bed and I'd go, uh, hey God, uh, like the first time I ask a vicar to preach before an elders meeting or something, and I get, uh, yeah, thank you for bringing us all here safely together. <laughs> Which makes me think that somebody must be a dangerous place where everyone must be crashing into each other because 
you know, they're just so thankful that they made it to the to class safely that day or something. Well, remember, they got to go through uh, summer Greek with all those vultures around. Oh, yeah. Look, staring at them through the window. (laughs) So that being said, that is kind of my motivation behind these prayers. And uh, now there's a lot of them. And, you know, I'm probably missing some that you think should be there, Berg. And maybe some of our listeners think should be there. But if you have a comment or a question, where can they find us? They can find us at... They can e- email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. And uh, they can find us on Facebook, Clerical Heirs Podcast, uh, on Facebook. Or you can find us on the Twitters. Uh, at me, bro. At me, bro, at Clerical Heirs P on Twitter. And uh, and if um, and my my son will inform me, our producer, of, of what that means, and I'll, we will get back to you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm going to be 46 here pretty soon, Berg, so I'm trying to keep up with all that. All right, so number 12. Number 12. David's prayer for his son Solomon and the temple. In uh, First Chronicles um, 29, 9 through 20. And uh, do you know much about that prayer, Berg? Honestly, it's not coming to mind. Okay, this is uh, this is not a... Not, uh, um, long before his death, and uh, he knows his son is going to build the temple. Uh, Vicar, do you did you find that? Do you have an excerpt that you think would be relevant to help us understand this prayer? Sure. So, um, uh, starting at verse ten, and David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, for ever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours." Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both honor and riches come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Okay, and uh, later on, Vicar, does he say anything? What does he say about the temple there? About his son. Let's see here. Here's verse 19. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Okay. So I, I kind of like that he prays for his son because Solomon would wind up building the temple because God needed a permanent home, right? Yeah, yeah. It uh, And David couldn't build it because he had bloody hands, mm-hmm. right? And so what's cool here is that this prayer really shows the third commandment, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Mm-hmm. And also the first petition, right? Mm-hmm. Hallowed be your name. Right. right. Very good. Number 11. This one's a, a pretty easy one. A pretty simple one. But it's from Luke chapter 18, and it is a prayer of the tax collector. Oh, yeah. Nice. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now you think, well, what's, well, that's, I guess that's a prayer that comes from the heart. Indeed. Right? But at the heart is the one that trusts in the goodness of God, that the, the prayer of faith that says the only way that I have salvation is in you, not relying on works or anything, but God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's a prayer that uh, um, that is part of our Sunday morning. Right. What I really like about that prayer is that um, there's a different word for mercy in Greek. Mm-hmm. What he says there is, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. Wow. And God does in his son, Jesus Christ. And so this man is looking to be uh, 
to have his sins covered, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what atonement means. Right. And that's what the blood of Jesus does. As opposed to uh, um, the Pharisee who, who felt that he didn't need that. Right. Number 10. This is also a, a simple prayer, but it was a prayer that uh, Jesus said at the Mount of Olives. Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Not my will, but your will. That is from Luke chapter 22. And it's a, a prayer of Jesus where he prays for the will of his father. And it's not always easy, is it? Yeah. Why did he have a cup again? He, he was going to die the next day. <laughs> right. Oh, it's one of those, you know, metaphors, right? Right. That the cup of the father's wrath is what he's about to drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and this this sort of imagery is very, very vivid in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself is using it here. Right. That he is going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Right. And and uh, and uh, that's not an easy thing for him to pray. No. And we see that here he even, uh, if there was any other way, uh, right. he wanted that, but he submitted himself to his Father. And, and, and that really reflects faith in this way. And we always need to remember this. We kind of talked about this at a previous episode where someone says, where someone asked, you know, I can't believe in a God who does such and such. And and part of faith is realizing that there really is a will different than our own. And much better than our own, even if we don't see it. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, part of his will, it's good and gracious. And uh, our will is always to, to make God in our own image rather than than having a God in his own image that we're made in. And uh, your will be done reflects that, that prayer of faith. Number nine. This is from Nehemiah 1 and uh, 2, where Nehemiah hears of the suffering of the returned exiles. It's, he prays for mercy for them. And after grieving and fasting and prayer, he prays that, that God listens to them. Um, and what I like about, and you'll find these in some of the other prayers, where where they express a trust in God's mercy. It almost calls God out to, you know, this is who you are, and this is what I trust you say you are. Do you have any, any anything that uh, you'd like to share from that prayer, Vicar? Did you find it? Sure. So this is uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. This is starting in at verse 10 into the prayer. Um, on behalf of the people, Nehemiah prays, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Number eight. Uh, this is Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter nine. And, and in this prayer, he prays uh, for the people after 70 years of exile in Babylon. And he prays for the temple and he prays for Jerusalem. And, uh, and uh, a very wonderful prayer. Um, Daniel is such an example of faith, isn't he? Yes, he is. And uh, did you know that he uh, was probably around eight years old? More than likely, maybe up to 14. Uh, he was one of the nobility that was taken into exile uh, during the first exile, actually. Uh, there were a number of uh, deportations by Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he might have actually been made into a eunuch. I didn't know that. Um, Steinman kind of talks about it in his commentary a little bit that uh, that was one of the things that Isaiah prophesied. It was one of the judgments, actually. And, I mean, it is interesting because Daniel, no wife is ever mentioned. Okay. Right? You know, I mean, it seems very strange. Then they have the master of the eunuchs that's over them, Mm -hmm. you know. 
So, I mean, there is some debate about whether he was a eunuch or not. And uh, he lived his entire life in a pagan land, in a pagan kingdom, and he suffered a lot. And yet, throughout all of this, he still held to God's promise that that his people would return and that they would rebuild the temple. So I, it is. It's a wonderful prayer. It's As you get older, it's easier to become cynical. And, uh, you know, it's, right, right. it's wonderful to see this uh, childlike faith. And, and especially sometimes, a lot of times we pray for uh, things that we, we act as though it's not really going to happen. Right. It's like we're trying to call God's bluff. Right. <laughs> and uh, And then he surprises us. So, all right. Number seven. This is... Uh, Hezekiah's prayer in Second uh, Kings nineteen and twenty, and uh, um, he is the they're about to ready to be conquered by the Assyrian army, right? And uh, and uh, he has just heard that he should be prepared to, to die, right? And uh, and in this he uh, he says things like, uh, um, "You, why should you make yourself to be like all the other gods?" Right, because. The envoy had just said that, well, all these other gods failed their their people. No mm-hmm. one can stand against the Assyrian war machine. And I mean, these people are brutal. Right. I mean, the Assyrians were a wicked people. Uh, they would do terrible things to their captives. And uh, Hezekiah, it's, it's kind of interesting because he's kind of like Joseph in the fact that he does everything right, and mm-hmm. then he still suffers for it. Right. And his, you know, he, he tears down all the altars. He is doing everything he's supposed to do. And yet his kingdom is besieged. And uh, that just shows you the crosses that Christians bear, too. Right, yeah, because... Now, now of course, he's vindicated in this life, but not all Christians are. Yeah, and and if you think of the prophets, how many of them were vindicated? Yeah, they were vindicated many years later. Like Jeremiah, I think the only one listening to him was his scribe. Yeah. Because he had to. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a vicar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number six. So number six is uh, is really two prayers, but they're so much alike, and that is uh, uh, <coughs> Hannah's prayer in First Samuel chapter two, and then Mary's uh, prayer song of praise in the the Magnificat, right, which we sing for vespers. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, one that uh, talks about how God lifts up the lowly, and how He hears. Vicar, why don't you uh, read uh, a little bit of? of uh, Hannah's prayer, because I think people probably know the one from Luke. In the King James, please, the only authorized version. (laughs) My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. Mine mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. That's one thing about a prayer we see in, in these two prayers is a lot of times they're just a reminder of what God has done. Right. And uh, what I like about this one is, is remember, how was Hannah praying in the ta- in the tabernacle? How? Yeah, how was she praying? What was her uh, demeanor? It, Do you remember? It was uh, very humble. She was going to have a child. Well, she w- well she was praying for a child, right? Right. But uh, what wasn't she doing? She wasn't talking out loud, right? Her lips were moving, and she wasn't talking. Oh, yeah. So Eli yeah. thought she was drunk, right? right? Peter, edit that out. I sound stupid there. 
I'm tired. <laughs> but uh, you know, this is this is usually the example that people have that oh well, you can pray in your heart and all this stuff, and it's true. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is here we have a written prayer, also right of Hannah that's recorded in the scriptures for our learning, and it's not her praying, but it's the Holy Spirit through her, just as it was with Mary, just as it was with Mary, and so that's the thing. It's uh, for the ancient people to pray without speaking was a very, very rare thing. And it was liable to misunderstandings. So, mm-hmm. which is why you always, that's why you teach your kids to do what? When you're teaching them how to pray. To fold their hands. Right, fold their hands and, and close their eyes. Right, bow their heads and, you know, so. All right. Number five. This is uh, Abraham's prayer for Sodom in Genesis chapter 18. And, uh, and here he, he pleads and trusts in God's mercy. And, uh, um, if there are 50 righteous people, you know, why don't you read a little bit of that, Vicar? Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So what I like about this prayer is it uh, it really calls on God to, to to say, okay, this is who you say you are. I'm trusting in your word. Right. You know what else I like about this prayer? Hmm. You know, Abraham asks, you know, okay, he gets God down to 10, right? <laughs> yeah. And yet God goes even beyond his prayer because there aren't 10 righteous in the city. But what does he do? He sends two angels in to get Lot and his family out. To get the the, the, the ones who were... Right, even and, though and, there were there were three, even though there were three righteous people, and and uh, God still God still does even more than we ask, and which is wonderful. And they're not even that righteous. <laughs> and they're not even that righteous, right? <laughs> and uh, and, the, and the fact that God not only exceeds that, but the the heart of the prayer is to to pray that God has mercy on them. You know, right? Um, talk about praying for your enemies. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Sodom was. Uh, not good. No, no, and and uh, and so 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 uh, Abraham prays for them to God, and he pleads for them, and 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 I think sometimes we have can have an attitude that that we you know we we think in terms of revenge, we want to have victory over our enemies, and uh, you know sometimes the Psalms sound that way, certainly right, but 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 in the sense of we still want God to be merciful, and we want them to have a change of heart. Right, and we see this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? God is not going to tear up the wheat just because there's a big old weed there, mm-hmm. you know, because he doesn't want to uproot the wheat because he's judging the weeds. Yeah. And so he leaves them all to the final judgment. Right, and it's kind of like, to me, it makes me think of Jonah's prayer after God saves Nineveh, ah. <laughs> where he says he, he was mad because he says, I knew I knew you were merciful. I knew you were going to do this. He didn't want them to be saved. He's like, the reason why I didn't want to go is you would have mercy, and these are not nice people. I wanted them to to be destroyed. Right. (laughs) Number four. We skipped number four. I guess you could call that a clerical error. Number three. Um, This is uh, from John 17, and this is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And uh, Always a great one. What I like about that is, is it really, it really l- looks into the heart of of Jesus. Right. When you hear that that dialogue between He and the Father, 
and uh, you know, it, it's all for his disciples in the church. And even though you can't pray that prayer because you're not Jesus, right? Know that Jesus prays for you. Yeah, and that we have an advocate with the Father. And and, uh, and though you you can't pray it in the same way he does, but you can ask for the same things. You know, keep right. us in your truth. Uh, keep us as one, praying for unity within the church, um, which is something that a lot of people don't think that uh, our version of Lutherans want, but we really do. We really do. <laughs> so, so that is John chapter 17. Number two. Now, you've probably noticed that there's a glaring hole in my list so far. I have. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> it's number one, so. Well, I haven't named any Psalms yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that's what I have as number two, the Psalms. <laughs> Right. Not only prayers, but also... God's Word. And hymns. Hymns, that's right. Right? And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the bodacious blasphemies, too. Oh, so, I can't wait. You know. I can't wait. So, but but, uh, but uh, there you have a prayer book. All prayers that run the, the gamut of experiences that we go through. Uh, joy, sadness, um, need for mercy. Prophecies uh, of Christ. Prophecies of Christ. Um uh, all in which they go through all the things we go through, and in the midst of all of them, what do you hear? You hear God's gracious answer. And so, and so, uh, you know, I would recommend praying the Psalms. <laughs> no doubt. And number one. So, any guesses on what, what this might be? Lord's Prayer. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. That's right, the Lord's Prayer. Yes. And, uh, Why don't we call it the Apostles' Prayer? Uh, because the Lord gave us this prayer. Okay, good. <laughs> Seriously, I've had a parishioner ask me about that because his Baptist friends told him that it should be called the Apostles' Prayer and not the Lord's Prayer. And uh, and I think going back to my my original rant is I think sometimes people actually think that that's almost a cop out. Right. Now it is if you in a way if you're praying it without considering what you're praying. Right. If you're if you don't have any faith, then yeah, it is rote. But this is also a beautiful example of, of how God answers your prayer. Because which of those things that you pray for in the Lord's Prayer does not God not give you? <coughs> you know? Right. He takes care of all of your needs. You know, I think of uh, um, uh, give us this day our daily bread. When was the last time, Berg, you had, you had no food to eat? Well, I have a wife, so I've got tons <laughs> of food to eat. So it's not like it used to be. Right. My cupboards aren't bare anymore. <laughs> And when was the last time uh, you didn't have anything to wear or anything? Clean or unclean? <laughs> that goes back to the same <laughs> same issue. Um, and uh, you think of how God delivers us from evil, how he forgives us our trespasses, how he asks us to call him our father, which by nature is a gracious thing, knowing that he lovingly hears our prayers. Right. Uh, we pray for his kingdom, and he certainly brings his kingdom of grace and mercy upon us, and we look ahead to... His, his coming for to bring us home and it really encapsulates everything and uh, and so so men if you have a hard time praying uh, and you think well what should I do where that where would be a good place to start Berg the Bible the Bible and the Lord's Prayer right we're having trouble reading each other's minds tonight <laughs> <laughs> we're not on the same wavelength tonight so <laughs> all right that brings us to Berg's Bodacious Blasphemies. Peter, play the intro. 
Berg's Bodacious Blasphemies is the part of the show where Berg seeks to sell you ancient damned illusions by repackaging them for modern consumption. In short, Berg makes bad stuff sound bodacious. So, today I'm going to do something a little different. This one's not as funny. Um, I'm kind of, I'm not as ranty as you are, but I think this is uh, kind of a, a real concern in the church today. I was talking to a, a pastor about this, and so the heresy we're going to talk about today is utilitarianism. Oh. Okay. Utilitarianism, and it sounds like a big word. It sounds like a, you know, $5 word, but really, what does it mean? It just means that we focus on what is useful. We focus on something's utility. Mm-hmm. And so we don't appreciate things for their beauty. So, for example, you go around to a lot of more modern churches, ones that were built uh, in the last few decades, and you find that they were built for utility and not really for beauty. Right? Yeah. They're not really all that beautiful. In fact, they're kind of ugly, right? And so the whole point here is that I wrote this uh, as a response to him uh, in dealing with this, and also uh, for us to appreciate uh, how beauty and truth go together. Okay. So here we go. Truth and beauty go together. In their highest form, truth and beauty are identical. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. That word good can mean morally good, but it can also mean beautiful. In the person of Jesus, we see that truth and beauty are the same. We also see how truth and beauty are combined in nature. The heavens above and the earth below declare his existence and his invisible attributes. The intricate workings of the human body, the beauty of a waterfall, and all of the creatures which God has formed are testaments both to the truth that he is their creator and to the reality that what he makes is beautiful. This explains why God created creatures that we shall never see or even know about. He made them for his own pleasure. As Psalm 104.31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. If the Lord rejoices in the beauty which he created, so should we. We see in the Old Testament, too, how truth and beauty are combined in the Mosaic Law. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were to be missionaries to the nations, so that the truth of God might be glorified. They were by their words and their deeds to proclaim the one who called them out of the darkness of Egyptian slavery into his marvelous freedom. They were also set apart, since they were to be a cradle for the Messiah, who would come in grace and truth. Here, in the Mosaic Law, we see truth was combined with beauty too. Why were there such costly vestments for the priests? Well, Exodus 28.2 says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. The priestly garments were to show, through beauty, the truth of the coming Christ, who would, be, who would by holy baptism, clothe us with himself. In this way, Christ has made us priests. God loves beauty, and he wants to adorn the truth with beauty. The tabernacle also was made with costly materials. The people gave freely, and the artisans were specifically blessed by God to accomplish these beautiful works in Exodus 35. This shows us how God desires to teach the truth in all beauty. This also shows that people's hearts were moved to give their gold, their silver, and their precious materials for this construction. This also shows that God loves beauty by granting artists the skill to craft beautiful articles to glorify God and to serve the congregation of Israel. The truth of the Psalms is also adorned in the, in the beauty of Hebrew poetry. Look, there are 150 Psalms. God did not put down his truth in bloodless propositions. He didn't make the prophets speak mathematically. He didn't cause David to teach his truth in prose. No, our triune God used poetry, beautiful things like rhyme and meter, to teach his truth and to change sinful and ungodly hearts. 
Beauty is not about utility. Beauty is not about getting things done. Beauty shows love. A love for the person and a love for the truth. That's what the sinful woman did when she anointed Jesus with the costly oil in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and John 12. In Matthew's account, Jesus said that she has done a good work to me. That word good is the same word for Jesus, the good shepherd. In the NIV, it says she has done a beautiful thing to me. So even though the world thinks that it is an extravagant waste, Jesus finds it beautiful and good. Even though many might think that serving the poor is better than this waste, Jesus would disagree. This woman is remembered throughout the world because of her beautiful and true act. She anointed Jesus for his burial. That is the truth. Because it revealed her love for the truth and her love for Jesus, her act was beautiful. How then should we view beauty in the church? Beauty adorns the truth. Beauty is there to serve the truth. Beautiful stained glass windows ought to remind us of what Christ has done for us. It ought to not simply be a bunch of colored glass, but it ought to teach the faith. Costly frescoes of biblical scenes ought to reinforce with the eyes what we hear with our ears. The altar and the vessels we use ought to reflect the dignity of what lies upon that altar, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We expect beauty. We expect beauty at weddings. We expect beauty in our homes. We expect beautiful shots when we go to movies. Why wouldn't we expect beauty when we come to church? The church teaches Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In Psalm 42, a messianic psalm says this about Jesus. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. If Christ is both good and beautiful, then our churches, which teach his truth, ought also to be beautiful. Wow. You put a lot of work in that, Berg. We do what we can. <laughs> I mean, this is a real issue. I mean, because... It's kind of the air we breathe in America. Wait, wait, wait. By the way, Berg is about to get real. <laughs> yeah, I, that's true. Real talk. Real talk. I mean, you know, it's it's the air that we breathe in America because, you know. It, we're so fascinated with beauty. I think part of the reaction is I think people see a, a culture that is upset, obsessed with kind of profane beauty. Right and uh, and vanity type beauty that they think that within the church, if you if you want beautiful things, that in a sense you're you're going back to that. But this is a beauty that teaches something completely different. Right, and people expect it. Right, I mean, you go to the I don't know if you went to the Avengers movie or not. Endgame. Yes, you did. Were the shots beautiful? Yeah, yeah. Cinematically, I'm sure it was a masterpiece. I haven't seen it, but I can only imagine. I can only imagine. <laughs> but. <laughs> Oh, God, now I got that stuck in my head. Oh. <laughs> anyway, but we see this beauty, right? These cinematically beautiful shots about things, like you said before in some of our previous podcasts, about things that are fake, things that are not real, mm -hmm. about fictional characters. But beauty always goes with the truth. The true, the good, and the beautiful always go together. Always. And, uh, you know, in, in the beauty, it teaches the faith. It does. You know, uh, I think uh, I'd like to see a shift in a lot of the, for example, the Sunday school material where, you know, it, it goes from cartoonish type entertaining characters right. to something more real and, and actually beautiful um, like they did uh, many years ago. You know, when uh, Concordia Publishing House put out all those pictures of various scenes in the Bible. Um, we have some of those hanging up here <gasps> that uh, are, are, are really beautiful. And it goes for music, too. Right. That our songs, uh, there was some... You know, what do you say? Egyptian, Lithuanian, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, right? At the church. If you don't understand the, that reference, you got to go back. So, but anyway, they uh, um, there was this one uh, congregation in uh, in Des Moines that uh, basically made this this song all about that babe, right? And they did it to be relevant, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're trying to they're trying to teach the faith through this little pop ditty song. And the thing is, is they fail because I guarantee you, what everybody hears if they know that song, they're thinking of the original, right? right? Which is terrible, right? So, yeah. so that's the thing. It's like they try to be relevant, and then they make something that's gaudy and tacky. And gross, and, and that it, has no dignity to it. And, and uh, I'm trying to speak speak for young people as someone who's almost 46, but I'm going to try. And that is, young people, uh, they want something that's authentic. Because when they hear something like that, they just hear, oh, okay, they can spot a, a sell job like that. They can they can sense when, oh, you're trying to sell me on something rather than you rather rather you want to teach me something authentic and and something beautiful that teaches. Not that you're trying to sell me on something with with some catchy tune, right? But uh, but uh, you're trying to give me something more authentic and real, and I think that's where this beauty should should come into play. Absolutely. So you know, if you disagree, awesome. If you think that beauty is relative, you're wrong. But write in and try to change our minds. And then we can have real discussions about it. And, and like I, I think I said this earlier in a podcast, we've done enough that we'll repeat ourselves once in a while. But that is the fact that, that language is not just words. Language, uh, non-communication language also speaks truths and can also confuse the truth. Right. Not only what you say, but how you say it makes a difference. If there's an incongruity with... Boy, that was a big word. I'm proud of myself. Holy if there's, a, there's an incongruity, and I probably messed it up, between... Um, what you say and how you say it, it does cause confusion that that way within the worship service as well. Right. So, so questions, comments, concerns, please write in to you all know. the places that you know he talked about before, especially so, Twitter, <laughs> especially Twitter. All right, that brings us to what do we got next? Concentrationally impaired Bible study. Peter, play the intro. Do you have impaired concentration? Then this is for you. It's the Impaired Concentration Bible Study. One verse, one verse only. All right, so this is Obadiah, verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Take it away, Berg. All right, I, this is the verse on how we date Obadiah because there are no real references in Obadiah to when it was written. Mm-hmm. And uh, here the use of the word stranger shows that this was this probably happened during the reign of King Jotham, mm-hmm. during the third sacking of Jerusalem, when the when the Arabians and the Philistines came up and took the city, right? This, this use of the word strangers and the like um, testify to this point. And once again, I'm using Steinman's book, uh, From Abraham to Paul. Uh, if you're interested at all in biblical chronology, you should really pick it up because it's a really great book, even though it's super expensive. So uh, these are the strangers who have sacked Jerusalem, who have taken uh, a bunch of Jews and people into captivity and sold them. And rather than being brothers, right, which mm-hmm. you know, the the Edomites should have been, they should have been uh, defenders and protectors and dare I say, keepers mm-hmm. of their brother, Yeah, uh, they stood aloof. And not only did they stand aloof 
but they participated in these sins. This uh, this teaches us about the uh, sins of participation, right? That um, uh, when you condone someone's sin, when you defend it, when you stand aloof and do nothing, mm-hmm. uh, you are actually partaking in another man's sins. And St. Paul tells us not to do that. Right, right. We kind of tend to wash our hands and say, well, that's your thing. You know, that's not me. Right. We're especially in, in our own country. We sell individualism in such a way like that you have your <laughs> right to do what you want. We have our right. But really, really, uh, if we care for them, we would try to help them. Right. And uh, Luther has this great line. If you did not help them, you've killed them. And it's true, it was especially with the fifth commandment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one way I think that uh, that that idea might come to play is uh, is uh, how we deal with addictions. You know, enablers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and that that's becoming such a thing nowadays. So, um, especially with the uh, opioids and all that stuff, I think I, th- I often think there's more that we should be doing with with helping people with that. Absolutely, it is. Uh, it is a slavery. Yeah. So, all right. On that bright note, <laughs> <laughs> that that brings us to confound the clerics, uh, Peter. Play the intro. Confound the clerics. This week we have another question from Kyle. He, he was the one that gave us the uh, question about baptism a couple weeks ago. I want to thank you all for such a thorough answer to my question. It's very enlightening and truly challenged me. How do Lutherans handle those who were baptized as infants but depart from the faith? It has to happen quite a bit. How do you take encouragement in the fact that you were baptized if so many depart from it? Also, how do you handle an adult... Who wants to be baptized? Do you look for evidence of conversion, or do you baptize them straight away, even if they're looking at baptism as a superstition or a work? All right. So, what was uh, the first first question with that, Peter? So the the, the first one was, uh, how do Lutherans handle those who are baptized but depart from the faith? Okay. Um, well, I would say it doesn't make what happened at baptism invalid. Yeah, this is why for Lutherans in the small catechism, we first talk about what baptism is, mm-hmm. and then we talk about its benefits. Right. Baptism is a washing of the water and the, with the word, right? Mm-hmm. Now, um, faith trusts in this word of God in the water. Right. right. So the thing is, is you uh, are baptized uh, if you fall away from the faith or depart from it, if you reject this faith, uh, you no longer have the benefits, but... You are still baptized because yeah. there's a difference between um, being baptized and receiving the benefits of said baptism. It's kind of like circumcision, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or, it, or the Lord's Supper, even. You know, if you uh, take it without examining yourself, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You know, it's not a, like a magical elixir, right? You still eat Jesus' body and blood, whether you believe or not. But it is, but but the faith makes it whether it's you take it to your judgment or. For your benefit. For your salvation. Right. And remember, we, we also believe that baptism does create faith because the because of the word, right? It is the word that creates faith. And then faith then turns around and grasps onto this word. Right. So so I think another uh, aspect is is uh, we're not saying, okay, you're baptized, now you, you're, you've done what you needed to do. Because if, first of all, that's making it your work, not a work of God. And second is... Uh, the faith that that you have needs to continue to be fed and nourished. You know, the parable of the sower is a good example. Right. That the seed is the word of God, and yet if that seed is not cared for and tended, 
right? Mm-hmm. Or um, like the tree, right, that Jesus talks about in the parable where uh, he tends to it for two years and the guy wants to cut it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other dude says, well, you know, let me uh, put fertilizer around there and tend to it and, you know. Right, right. Um, that's what, you know, faith needs to be fed and it needs to be fed by the word of God. So that doesn't make, so if it's not fed and nourished, that doesn't make the initial sowing of the seed invalid. Right. All right, what, what's the next part of that question, Peter? How do you take encouragement in the fact you were baptized if so many depart from it? Okay, well, I would say this, is if you are taking heart, taking uh, encouragement in your baptism, what are you doing? You're, you're taking heart in the promise of God. You're taking heart in Jesus' death for your sins. You're taking heart that, that he has saved you. So so if, if you're unbelie- in unbelief and you're not taking heart in that, the fact that you're finding encouragement in your baptism is what we call that faith. Right. And I think too, this is a really, how do you find encouragement in this, even though so many have fallen away? Well, in a way, it's kind of like First uh, Peter chapter three, where um, the antitype for baptism is the flood, mm-hmm. right? Noah and his family were saved through water. They were the only eight on earth who believed. Right. Right. Just because the whole world stands against us, that does not nullify the grace of God. It doesn't nullify the promises of God. And that is a wonderful thing that uh, even though there were so many that fell away uh, during that time, even though they had many of the patriarchs, mm-hmm. Methuselah was alive until the year of the flood. Uh, they, they could hear it. I mean, Methuselah would have talked to Adam. Right, you know, even Noah's dad, Lamech, was fifty-six when Noah, when uh, when Adam died. I mean, what a wonderful thing, right? And yet, in this time, the whole world fell away. There was only eight people who believed in the entire world, and yet God still saved them. That's how we take encouragement in it, now, because it's not based upon um, uh, numbers. Right, it's based upon the Word of God. And I think, I think what and you can let us know, Kyle, if you. Uh, if you want to clarify, I think part of the idea is uh, the concern of, of people saying, well, I'm baptized. I have that taken care of, so I don't need to to have the concern at all in God's word. But but that's not faith. <laughs> no, no, that is self-confidence. That and is- we see that um, with the children of Israel, right? They were baptized, 1 Corinthians 10. They were baptized into Moses. They ate the spiritual meat that is the manna, right? The spiritual bread. They drank from the same spiritual rock. But what happened? They died because they didn't have faith. And and so if, though, in faith, you, you rejoice in the fact that you are a baptized child of God, that he died for your sins. And that baptism now saves, saves you, you. Then guess what that is? That is faith. And what's the next part of that question, Peter? How do you handle an adult who wants to be baptized? Do you look for evidence of conversion, or do you baptize them straight away, even if they're looking at baptism as a superstition or a work? Well, I would say the first thing we do for an adult baptism is we teach them. Right, just like the Ethiopian eunuch was taught by Philip. Right, and that is something a distinction we make when it comes to infant baptism and someone who is an adult, because uh, when you're an adult... Um, you are, can you have faith as you're working towards learning about that faith? Mm-hmm. And then so there is, if you're, you have the desire to be baptized, you were first instructed in the faith. And then that's, I guess, the distinction. As far as proof of conversion. Um, 
Well, I mean, I, I guess there I take proof of conversion as I believe in God. Right. You know, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? You know, um, that, I guess that's what we would consider to be proofs of conversion. Uh, you know, a beginning to str- a beginning of the struggle with the flesh. Um, we just don't take a super soaker around and start baptizing people we know aren't Christians. Right, right. Or, you know, um, on a rainy day at a football game, you know, baptize half the town. Right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, and so... But it all is the same baptism. Because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Infants uh, receive faith through this. Uh, for adults, um, just like for Abraham, who was circumcised many years uh, after he believed on God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness... It, as Romans says, uh, his circumcision was a seal of righteousness. It was a guarantee. And um, that's exactly what it is uh, for it, for the adults. Do they believe? Yes, they do. And faith saves. But uh, also, and there's no buts there, but God has given us so many comforts and consolations in the sacraments, like in baptism, which is a seal of righteousness. So uh, hopefully we covered the bases. If not... Keep on uh, emailing. You have such great questions, Kyle, and we thank you for that. It's uh, I think we said this before. It's for people like you that we really do this podcast because, uh, it, one, it's 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 good to have this kind of healthy dialogue, and it's good to have a place where people can ask those kind of questions, and and uh, and hopefully we can answer them. So thank you so much, uh, Kyle, for for listening and continue to listen and ask more questions. They're they're wonderful questions, brother, and uh, keep them up. You know, I really got excited when I uh, saw the when you mentioned the questions. Actually, so it was it was pretty fun. So. Yeah. And uh, for more information on uh, the baptism stuff, you can refer to the Book of Concord, right? You, you know, I think uh, judging from your questions, Kyle, um, I think you sound like you're ready to start getting into to, to the Book of Concord, and uh, I would suggest that, wouldn't you, Berg? Yeah, I think that would be great because you're you're really thinking about these things and. And uh, there you will find it's a it's a lot of reading to do. What would be the best place to start for him in the Book of Concord? Well, depending on your budget, right, um, there is a free resource that you can go to right now called bookofconcord.org. It's a little older translation, but it's, you know, an oldie buddy goodie. Uh, you can also go to a Concordia publishing house that we sometimes refer to as CPH. And you can buy a reader's edition of the Book of Concord for, I would say, around, what, 20, 25 bucks? Something like that, yeah. And uh, that is really straightforward. There are a lot of wonderful historical and theological notes, wonderful headings, and, you know. And we, we encourage everybody to do this. Every Lutheran should really have this on his, on his or her shelf. And, and the kind of questions you've been asking, Kyle, is it the same kind of things that we've been wrestling for a long time. And that's, that's one thing you'll see if, when you get into the Book of Concord. So... All right, that brings us to our sticky Sticky notes. notes. Hey, it's Peter from the future here. Uh, I decided that this week, instead of a regular sticky notes, I thought I would play for you what it sounds like when they actually record the sticky notes segment. This will be completely unedited. Enjoy. Now, this is a a goofy part, VIP section. (laughs) This is how this works. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) you remember this? (laughs) (laughs) what about this (laughs) our laughs were hardier at one point it was it's late at night (laughs) and how about this whoa (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you for listening 
I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. And thank you for listening to Clerical Errors. Oh, come on. Do something better than that. May all your hopes and dreams come true. Unless they're bad. Then I hope they don't. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Money we receive is invested back into the podcast and the surplus donated to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. On Twitter at Clerical Heirs P for podcasts or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. There you can also find links to the things we talked about. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.